And I just remember sitting about 16,500 feet on the edge of these, the cloud deck, watching down and it looked like essentially giant fists of wind coming down and just blowing 60 knots or something on the ground there, um, maybe gusts even higher through, the, through this microburst event that lifted up gliders. And I, 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 I was too far away to see the um, see any, any aircraft or anything, but I could see these big plumes of dust just billowing up from, from the desert floor. This is Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast, coming to you from the mid-Atlantic region here in the United States and bringing you great soaring content from glider pilots all over the globe. We now join Chuck and our guest pilot. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you, Soaring Community, for joining us. Welcome back to the podcast. We have another great show lined up for you today. One of the things we stress here on the pod is getting and keeping young people involved in our sport as they are the future of soaring. Our guest, Zach, is a great example of this. Now, Zach is 23 years old, but has already accomplished so much in aviation and our sport he is an aerospace engineer currently working for a company focused on unmanned aircraft. Zach learned how to fly gliders while attending Cal Poly. He also has had the opportunity to work on the Nexus project, the first general aviation project using a 28-meter glider wing using fly-by-wire. Zach will share with us more on this project as well as other soaring adventures that he has had. Later on the podcast, Chris Stevenson returns with a new listener logbook. Glad to have Chris back as he chats with some West Coast pilots about some recent winter flights they have had. Sergio, the Soaring Master, is also back with a brand new segment, and this one is called Should I Stay or Should I Go? All this and more right now on episode 107 of Soaring the Sky. Zach Yamauchi, welcome to Soaring the Sky. Glad to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Chuck. It's awesome to be here. I'm looking forward to this uh, this interview. Um I also want to say thanks for everything you're doing for the soaring community in terms of the kind of uh, connecting us with other pilots um, further distances away from each other. I've really enjoyed listening to this uh, series that you kept going. So, um, yeah, thanks for the good work. You're absolutely welcome. You know, we have a great team here on the podcast and and we are having a blast doing this. But I'm looking forward to talking to you for sure. And of course, I always like to ask in the beginning of the show. Take us back to the beginning of your aviation story and how you got started and how you ended up in a sailplane. So I'm a 23-year-old glider pilot. Um, currently live in San Luis Obispo, California on the California Central Coast. Um, but uh, I'm one of those kids who is always fascinated by aviation and flight. And so I uh, grew up flying RC planes, uh, kites as well. I had one glider flight about 10 years ago. Um, uh, definitely got my piqued my interest Um New, new flying would be something I definitely want to pursue, but at the time, uh, being, a, being a kid, wasn't financially feasible to do so. Um, so those dreams would have to wait till an unknown time. But uh, anyways, I went to high school in uh, Truckee, California. There's a glider port up there, but uh, yeah, that was where I had my first flight of about 10 years ago. And then in 2016, um, I went down to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, where I currently live, um, to study aerospace engineering. Um, and uh, my freshman year down at Cal Poly, I was kind of looking for a club or some, some kind of extracurricular activity to supplement my uh, engineering coursework. And so uh, a couple months into school, I ran across a group called Aquafleeg Slow. Um, and essentially what Aquafleeg Slow is, it was at, um, 
founded in about 2014, so a couple of years before I got to Cal Poly. And uh, well, Akaflieg, it, it's a German word that roughly translates to academic flying club. So in Germany, there's 14 of these clubs. Um, and they work to bridge the gap between uh, coursework, um, academic coursework, uh, especially in engineering, uh, and then practical hands-on experience. So Akaflieg's are, are known um, in Germany for pushing the envelopes of uh, sailplane engineering. Um, they do a lot with gliders flying and building them. Uh, in the U.S., we don't really have a model like that in our in our um, upper-level education or higher education. And so um, it was the goal of the founders of this this organization to at Cal Poly to bring that um, that Aka Fleet experience to a U.S. university. So um, first couple months at Cal Poly, ran across that club, um, started went out to a local club, uh, a glider club about an hour away from the university um, where there was instruction available, club gliders for rent, um, took an intro flight, was immediately hooked. Um, the the um, glider use and, and tow fees out there are incredibly affordable given that it's a club um, with student rates to encourage uh, younger people to get involved. Um, after about a dozen or so flights, got the chance to solo, and about six months after that, um, got my license. Um, the summer, it would have been summer of 2017. Um, and then from there, uh, it was trying to figure out uh, opportunities to fly as much as possible. The club had a DG100, um, which was uh, uh, available for um, uh, members once they got their license. So I flew that a handful of times, and then uh, after that, my second season of soaring, I, I ran into an incredible opportunity, which I think we'll talk about more, but uh, essentially being able to borrow a glider. One thing to add about the uh, Fleeg, so it's, a, it's an awesome organization, still around at Cal Poly. Um, they've got, uh, since my time there, actually, I guess since founding a couple of years before I joined, um, there's... I think total they've got around 30 glider students um, soloed of, of college students soloed, and then about a dozen of those have gone on to get their license. So uh, we've got a pretty strong um, stronghold of, of youth soaring pilots kind of uh, coming out of uh, Cal Poly and the Central California area. So currently still live in um, San Luis Obispo. I'm working as an aerospace engineer at a local. Um, a uh, small engineering company that works on unmanned uh, unmanned aircraft. So how did you break free of your home airport and start doing longer cross-country flights or landing out at other airports? Just kind of do it yourself, books, YouTube, or did you have mentors that actually flew with you on your task in a two-seater together, or did you do a buddy system? Yeah, so I would say I, I, I've always been kind of on the aggressive side of, of the uh, soaring and learning curve, just wanting to do as much as I can as quick as possible. Um, obviously, keeping safety in mind, but um, really pushing for f pushing for further, higher, longer, those types of things um, uh, early on uh, throughout my glider career, really. Um, and so, I would say my third or fourth flight in that club, in that um, club DG100, I probably I think I ended up about 25 miles away from the airport. Uh, we had a rule in that, so 19 to one to pattern. Um, to keep you within local flying, quote unquote, local flying. Um, right. And so that was a booming day. Thermals up to 10,000 feet. Uh, 19 to 1 puts you about 25 miles away. So that's about as far as I ended up. Uh, <laughs> right. Nice. And uh, after that, I think they, they tightened down the rules a little more on, on taking gliders and <laughs> taking that glider <laughs> out. I think there's uh, some required amount of landings you had to do before doing like true cross country. But I guess technically, I was still local, even though I was definitely pushing it. Um, 
And yeah. uh, that really just came from, uh, I, I guess, being ambitious about it. Um, it still stayed within that 19 to 1 requirement. But um, I guess starting off cross country wasn't something I was really afraid of. Um, it was something that was really exciting to me. Um, and especially uh, when you're running those margins, we could talk about flying, um, what kind of margins to fly with later in the podcast, but, uh, uh, running margins like 19 to one generally or half plus glide, I think on that glider is 38 to one. So half of that, um, generally you're doing, uh, being pretty conservative, uh, um, obviously given this per, uh, specific circumstances for that, um, that can vary, but um that's kind of how i first started getting into local cross country and then once that cirrus came along um really starting to branch out keep obviously keep flying cross country keeping known fields and known strips in glide uh where i fly out of avenal it's actually a, i would have to say one of the probably best places to learn how to fly cross country um at airports at 800 feet we've got a 4400 foot ridge line about six miles from the airport um, there's fields all around the airport in that California Central Valley. Um, and then on good days, yeah, lift gets eight, nine, ten thousand feet uh, up there. So generally speaking, lots of crop duster strips around, lots of uh, fields to land in if you fall short of those, um, a pretty benign environment. So in terms of learning and getting out of kind of uh, getting the first flights out of out of the local soaring area, it was just kind of jumping to different airports. Uh, definitely had some good mentors. Um, through there. Uh, I know one of, uh, one of your early podcast guests, Thomas Greenhill, um, was a friend of mine. Uh, he started soaring a little bit before me, but, um, we both kind of got, got through cross country and then eventually started co- competing around the same time as well. Um, so yeah, in the summers we were kind of able, uh, able to, uh, uh, bounce knowledge off each other, talk, kind of debrief our flights, and then as well as a couple of other local glider pilots um, out of Avenal, also coming up in the Akaf League. Um, those pilots were uh, were learning cross country around the same time, and so yeah, just having a young um, group of pilots uh, that are all kind of going with the same mission of learning to fly cross country, all at about a similar pace and then similar time frame. That really, really helped. Um, another bonus of being a young pilot is that, uh, the more experienced pilots are much, uh, much, uh, are just very apt to uh, share that knowledge with you, um, and help you out, give you pointers, um, help debrief flights, things like that. Um, so really fortunate to have those opportunities in terms of other materials for learning to fly cross country. Um, I found books, um, specifically like Reichman's um, cross-country soaring, just getting a fundamental knowledge of gliders, polars, um, thermals, things like that. I know G. Dales has some excellent books, uh, the soaring engine for starting out, um, for learning the fundamentals and even into some kind of advanced techniques for uh, flying flying and uh, utilizing lift sources. Um, another thing that I still do to this day is a lot of OLC studying. OLC is a great resource for those of you guys who don't know. Online contest, uh, it's kind of a depository, at least in the U.S., I know, and I think in a lot of Europe for um, – glider pilots fly flights and then upload the flight traces to OLC. And so uh, having all that knowledge kind of, of past flights and in, in almost in everywhere I've ever flown, having to look at uh, other people who've flown that air, what they've done, how they get out, um, lift lines that they fly. Uh, there's a lot of information that can be gleaned from uh, looking back on looking at OLC flights and uh, looking at how kind of how the experts do it. <laughs> 
in addition to that, just flying a lot and flying often um, keeps your skills sharp and then allows you to really progress quick, a lot quicker and uh, learn, uh, kind of accumulate knowledge um, faster than when you spread flights further apart, when you tend to forget stuff and uh, not be able to pick up on the specific cues that you do um, when you're flying uh, often. And then, uh, yeah. Yeah, you asked about two-seaters, and I think, so fun fact here, didn't really fly cross-country two-seat at all until uh, 2020, so a few years after I started flying cross-country, um, and that flight was actually in a Nixus glider, which we, we can talk, talk about later, but uh, yeah, so no two-seat training for me, so it can be done. You can get into cross-country successfully without flying two-seat, um, but I know for a lot of people, that's really, really helpful. Jess Soaring, the makers of the Glider Sim Pro Sailplane Simulator Cockpit, would like to congratulate German pilot Ben Fest for his recent victory in the first ever FAI-sanctioned aviation esports event in history, the Sailplane World Grand Prix, which Ben won after several days of exciting competition against some of the top Condor soaring pilots from around the world. If you are looking for a best-in-class dedicated sailplane simulator cockpit for Condor or Microsoft Flight Sim, look no further than the Just Soaring Glider Sim Pro. Check them out at JustSoaring.com or at Just.Soaring on Instagram. I see you had a 816-kilometer flight in 2019, not long after you started flying cross-country. That's pretty crazy. Can you tell us about that flight? Yeah, so that... Uh, flight in particular was out of Inyokern. So Inyokern is a soaring site at the southern end of the Sierra Nevada mountain range um, that runs up California, the length of California, a little bit into Nevada. Um, and it's home to the highest peak in, uh, in the continental United States, Mount Whitney. Um, and so that flight in particular was a wave flight. So um, Sierra, the Sierra Nevada generates some of the strongest um, wave in, in, the, in the world. Um, and most consistent for when, when the wave's going. Um, Jim Payne flew a 2,900-kilometer and change flight out of there uh, in, in that mountain range a um, handful of years back. Um, and so when the Sierra wave is going, um, it's like being on a highway. I mean, uh, you get these lift bands uh, that, that, sh that are wide, that are strong um, and consistent throughout the day. Uh, and so really that, that 800 kilometer flight early on my soaring season or soaring career was, uh, not too, too difficult. Technically it was more so of a challenge of staying warm and, uh, staying hydrated up at those altitudes, um, uh, flying that wave. And so I think it was starting to become winter time around then, but, uh, yeah, it was, um, climb up, essentially climb up with a little bit of rotor, um, get up into the wave. The wave is completely laminar and push your nose down until you hit uh, essentially um, flying most of that flight or on the uh, pushing up on the whatever the speed limit for the glider is um, in that rough air. So just keeping it below the rough air speed in case you hit turbulence, which yeah, it wasn't really a factor in this, but um, kind of just bobbing and weaving your way in and out of the lift because, uh, yeah, on the strong parts of that lift, you're hitting 2,500, 3,000 feet a minute. Um, so staying out in front of those lift bars um, to essentially match your sink rate to the rising rate of the wave um, allows you to fly these incredibly long, fast flights without ever having to stop and turn. Um, 
And so, yeah, it was pretty spectacular. It wasn't, I wouldn't say a technically difficult flight, but um, in, of course, flying wave has a lot of uh, risks associated with it um, and can't recommend flying wave um, in the Sierra for people who don't have a full understanding of those risks associated with it. And I'm not a flight instructor, so I not necessarily feel comfortable with going into uh, going into all of those things. But um, uh, there's definitely resources online. There's a lot of books out there um, written by people who have uh, learned learned a lot from mistakes um, uh, to fly to make flights like this and make flights like this safely in this era. Yeah, it's definitely another beast. You definitely want to be trained before you get into all that. Yeah, and. Yeah, and it's, uh, that was my first time out in the Inyokern wave, um, or at, le at least out at Inyokern trying to fly, fly wave. I think there's one or two times before that where I went out, uh, drove, it's about four hours from my house, so not a, not a short drive, um, but went out there, um, rigged the glider um, one time, another time just left in the box and said, you know what, this is not conditions I'm comfortable with. So really waiting for that perfect day to make a flight like this is really important and not just getting, um, not just falling in the trap of, Oh, I, I, I made the drive. So got to put the glider together because, uh, yeah, a flights, uh, what's the saying? It's better to wish that you're, um, wish that you're on, you're better that you're on the ground wishing you're in the air than in the air wishing you're on the ground. Yeah, that's <laughs> so, right. Um, definitely. But yeah. it was a spectacular day. Um, and uh, yeah, glad I glad I got to make that flight. I was chatting with Mitch, our uh, producer, who got his private rating um, in the summer of 2020. He flies out of Crystal, just north of LA. Now, for him, the biggest thing is just needing to have a buddy system and a buddy that has the time and energy to burn doing, you know, retrieves and crewing for just recreational cross country. Forget about doing week long regional races and stuff like that, but doing long local flights in the mountains is rewarding, but yeah, to really break loose from the home field, it takes a village kind of thing. Not only is one's own personal time hard to come by, but then it has to line up also with your buddies willing to be and capable crewing. There's a lot involved in that. Yeah. So from what I understand for crystal, so I've flown a lot of glider ports out of California, this side of the country, California, Nevada, but never flown out of crystal. Um, and from what I understand, there can sometimes be hard to get back there in the afternoons or evenings. Um, so out returns or uh, oftentimes from crystal, I've heard it's, it's just a guaranteed straight out. Uh, could be wrong on that. I love to, uh, love to get actually talk to Mitch more about this probably one-on-one. -on -one. Um, to figure out if my uh, perceptions are correct or not, but um, in terms of uh, getting getting into getting comfortable with uh, flying outside of glide and, and starting to fly cross country, um, I'm fortunate enough to fly from Avenal, which is a site that's really conducive to out and return flights. Um, it's lined up on a convergence line out um, uh, between the Central Valley and the coast of California, and so yeah, we're able to launch. Um, launch before noon and then get on that convergence line, go fly it and come back. And yeah, there's always the cases when you're learning where uh, something doesn't go right, you fall off the line, um, you get low and you need to land, land hopefully at an airport or it could even be a field, but some somewhere that you know is safe. And uh, yeah, have to have a buddy come and get you. So um, the way I've kind of worked through this, because I, I don't have a dedicated crew hardly ever and, and didn't really have that many dedicated crews um, starting soaring. Um, first tip is always you got to be the first one in line to go pick someone up because then they're in debt to you. 
Um, so that's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's one of the tips is, yeah, if you, if someone else lands out, be, be the first one to pick them up because, uh, they owe you maybe a steak dinner, but then also a, a retrieve when you need it. <laughs> um, but then right? in terms of that, yeah. <laughs> In addition to that, just uh, finding buddies. So oftentimes figure out, get to know the people in your glider club, get to know those people, have conversations with them, talk to your mentors. Um, I'd be very surprised if someone who's willing to mentor you and give you advice is unwilling to pick you up if you landed out somewhere, yeah. obviously within reason, but <laughs> but uh, just having those um, those things worked out before your flights uh, puts a lot of, uh, puts the mind at ease. Um uh, in terms of making decisions, starting to push and things like that, knowing that, hey, if I go to this next cloud and it doesn't work out, someone uh, will be there ready to get me, have your trailer hooked up, things like that. So that um, landing out sh is pretty much a non-event. And then in addition to that, there's always the ability to keep your, I think, at least for us at Avenal and then other places like Truckee is if you don't make it back to uh, back to Truckee or Avenal, you land at a at, if you land at a hard surface runway, the tow plane is available to come get you. So keep that in mind as a as an option too for an error retrieve. But uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely as one of my club members said it uh, not too long ago. Uh, I think it was right after he soloed, but uh, said that aviation. Uh, he didn't know aviation could be a team sport, um, and soaring shows that to be true. So, yeah, it does take a village, um, but definitely, definitely um, uh, good to get to know everybody and make friends and uh, look out for each other um, as you're starting soaring. Absolutely. And the soaring community definitely does a good job of that. Yep. We saw from your LinkedIn profile online that you used to build out and train people on flight sim gear. One of the projects, you know, Mitch has been working on besides helping out here at the podcast, building a, a dedicated glider sim for Condor. Do you think a properly set up Condor sim rig together with tablet and flight computer, you know, running XC soar or top hat or something. Do you think that's helpful for pilots that want to learn how to fly and deal with their flight computer screens and swiping and on the off season? Yeah. So Condor is an awesome tool we have as a glider, as a glider community. I mean, we're overall gliders are, uh, aviation's a small, small, generally aviation small. And then, inside of that gliders are small. So it's pretty cool that we have a, a team essentially dedicated to making a simulator for us. So hats off to the Condor guys. You guys have some incredible software. And then also it's, it's pretty cool to see uh, the, what's happening with the hardware for the simulators, um, seeing that Just Soaring is, is putting out um, a pretty robust uh, flight simulator. Uh, we also have, a, I have experience with the Mach 0.1 simulator. Aquafleet actually had one donated to them. Um, a few years back and that's gotten excellent use out of it with amongst the uh, college students. So I know that uh, Condor, uh, Condor has proven, at least um, from what I've seen, to be a very uh, useful tool for a lot of aspects of flying. Um, you asked about um, a past, uh, past work experience I had, which was working at a, a flight sim company making simulators for um, powered aircraft, powered GA aircraft. Um, one of the things that was uh, for the, on the powered side of things, which was most useful, or the simulators were most useful for, was it, uh, training pilots uh, to fly instrument um, instruments. And so, uh, with that, um, really, you use a simulator in that situation where the flying at that point is is you're comfortable with the flying, flying second nature, and you're really trying to get acquainted with the instruments, the way the um, avionics work in the airplane, shooting instrument approaches, things like that. And so in a glider, um, probably wouldn't be true 
20, 30 years ago, but now our cockpits are kind of full of electronics, bells and whistles and all of that. And uh, really, the, a lot of those, those electronics and features are critical to uh, flying good flights and flying safety safely. And so being able to use Condor in a way that uh, teaches you how to use your soaring, your flight computer, your Varios, understanding um, how, things, how things behave uh, in flight but doing so on the ground is invaluable. Uh, I know that I, I personally fly with Udi. I know that there's support for using Udi in Condor. I'm uh, not sure how that is with LX and other flight computers, but um, if you're able to uh, use, I know, let's see, XD Soar as well is integratable with Top Hat. And so, or uh, sorry, is integratable with Condor. Um, and so being able to use that in the flight simulator envi environment's a great way to uh, get familiar with your flight computer and something really when you start flying cross country and um, getting away from your home airport, even flying locally, it's important to know uh, how close you are to your glide margins and, um, uh, and other uh, important parameters, winds, thermal strength, things like that in flight uh, and being able to access those, know what pages they're located on the flight, flight computer and things like that. And so, uh, yeah, definitely important to be able to, uh, important to know how to use that hard piece of hardware and software um, to conduct safe flights. So being able to do that in Condor, yeah, I think that's that's uh, pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. Get that stuff all out of the way. Learn how to use it on the ground so you're not doing it in the cockpit. Sure. Definitely don't want to be doing that. <laughs> Aerox, the number one in portable and engineered aviation oxygen systems, your source for FAA-approved oxygen masks and portable oxygen systems, and now introducing the Aerox Pro 2 Plus Flight Bag Portable Oxygen System. Small, lightweight, and simple to use, the Pro 2 Plus is perfect for the occasional user who wants the flexibility to access higher altitudes without worry about flying impaired. Now available at Aerox Distributors and at Aerox.com, so remember our friends at Aerox, engineered for aviators. Going back to your days at Cal Poly, and given that we've had the Perlin folks here on the podcast a couple of times, can you tell us about the Nexus project you were a part of? Were there any interaction or relationships between that project and the Perlin project? Or was it just Jim Payne taking some time to work with you guys? And also, maybe could you tell us about the glider itself? Sure. Yeah. So um, the Nexus project. So for those who haven't heard of this, this is a 28-meter um, fly-by-wire glider wing going on an ash 30 fuselage with an aspect ratio of over 50 to one um a lot of firsts in this aircraft i believe it's like the first uh, manned fly-by-wire um, general aviation aircraft so fly-by-wire um essentially means that traditionally in um in an aircraft in gliders uh, in particular all of our controls are hooked up mechanically so we have a mechanical linkage that goes from our stick um between our, between our legs and our pedals going back to the control surface. So when you move a stick, um, the control surface always moves the same amount for a given stick movement, and you can feel the, the control movement. You can feel the air moving, uh, pushing up against the control. Um, it's a pretty robust, safe way of, of doing things. That's uh, something that's been around since the early days um, of aviation, back to the right flyer, um, everything being hooked up mechanically. Um, fly by wire is something that came along, um, 
in the last, I would say about 50 years or so, starting like a lot of that technology, aviation technology does in the military with fighter jets and essentially replacing that mechanical connection between this, the uh, in, input device, so a stick or a yoke, um, replacing that mechanical connection from that to the flight surf, flight control surface with an electronic means. So that's where the wire comes in. Uh, so essentially those fighter first fighter jets would fly by wire. Um, you'd move the control stick that would send an input to a computer. That computer would uh, take in that input and then send an electronic output to an actuator on that control surface and move that control surface. In gliders, this has a lot of uh, interesting um, uh, a lot of interesting um, things you can do with it. So on a big glider like Nixus, one of the actually reasons that fly-by-wires was chosen for this project is the wing is such high aspect ratio, meaning small, small thickness um, uh, from forward to aft section of the wing to span, so wingtip to wingtip, um, that the wing ends up being really thin um, in the, in the, between the upper and lower surface on the wing. So not that much room for putting in mechanical control connections. Uh, so Nixus solves this problem by in the wing, in the wing, at least on five of the, uh, five of the six, I believe, um, flaperon sections um, using a, a servo and then connecting to a computer inside the fuselage um, uh, with wires. Uh, it's still backed up. Um, the outboard panels on the, uh, on the wing are still backed up redundantly um, with a mechanical control connection. So in the, in the situation that everything um, stopped working, uh, at least electronically, um, the glider would still be have enough control authority to land safely. However, um, putting all of those, uh, all of those um, servos and then also being able to, to um, control everything through a computer allows you to fine tune the control surfaces. Um, so on a, on a, Open class, large open class glider like uh, Nixus, comparable to what would be about an, like an Ash 30 or a Nimbus, um, JS1 even. Um, you've got big me mechanical mixers in the fuselage. So meaning they mix in the aileron and the flap movement. So on the wing, you get, you roll into a turn, um, you have a flaps in a certain setting and the flap and ailerons will move uh, in conjunction uh, depending on what flap setting you have. That big mechanical mixer is something that is fixed. It's something that has to get designed really carefully uh, to match the aerodynamic performance of the glider. When you switch all of that hardware out for software and for a computer, you could change a lot of things on the fly. For example, uh, depending on what wing loading we're flying with, what um, airspeed we're flying with, what G loading we're flying with, the flaps can go to the most optimal position um, for the aerodynamics of the aircraft. So uh, that's kind of what Nixus, uh, Nixus is. There's um, a lot of, uh, a lot of um, good content online if you want to look up more about that project and more curious about it. Um, but my involvement in Nixus starts, um, started in, I uh, believe, um, 2018 around that time while well, I was a, a student at Cal Poly studying under um, uh, Dr. Paulo Iskold. Um, Paulo Iskold uh, is originally from Brazil um, came to the U.S. to specifically work on this project, and uh, around that time in 2018, who um, was a professor in, at uh, in Brazil, and uh, essentially came to the U.S. to work on this project during a sabbatical, um, 
and not just any uh, not just any professor in Brazil. He's a multiple world record holder. Um, Anakim's another one of his projects. Also works on Red Bull Air Race. A pretty incredible guy to uh, get to know and then get to get to study under, and um, get to work on these cool projects with. So, Paulo came to the, um, Cal Poly in about 2018, I believe, um, and uh, with this with this with this project, uh, maybe it was 20 maybe 2017. Um, with and uh, with it, he brought with him Nixus project. And um, while he was finishing this project, essentially brought it to Cal Poly. Um, he had one last wing section to close up, and then had to do um, kind of the integration, the control integration, and a handful of other things on the aircraft um, before it was ready for flight testing. So um, about a about a year or so, a year and a half or so from the time he came to Cal Poly to when it, to its first flight. And so in order to do that, um, needed some help um, from uh, no other than Aka Fleek Slow got involved. And uh, that's how I got introduced to the project. Um, something I spent a lot of time with um, during my time at Cal Poly. Um, and starting with closing out the last section of the wing um, up to integrating the flight controls, um, performing tests, ground vibrational tests, essentially hooking up hundreds of accelerometers to the wing, shaking it and making sure that uh, the models for flutter or other structural phenomena match up to the um, finite element, the uh, computer models that the aircraft was designed around and then uh, onto the first flight. Um, so it was pretty incredible experience to be a part of that first flight. Um, uh, this is where Jim Payne comes in. Jim Payne is the test pilot for the Nixus project, also the pet test pilot for, uh, actually the chief pilot for uh, Perlin project. And uh, he came, I think first time I, I, I met him was in uh, uh, 2018 when he came to Cal Poly to give a talk on Perlin. Um, and then as Akafli got more involved in Nixus and as Nixus moved towards uh it's it's flight uh, first flight date. Um, we worked pretty closely with Jim, obviously still with Paulo, um, and getting this glider ready for him. Um, first flight happened at Castle Air Force Base, so a big long runway up in Merced, California, old B-52 uh, base. From that from that experience, um, eventually got had the op opportunity to fly with Jim and Nixus uh, after graduating. I think it was important to Paulo that no active students flew in one of his airplanes that he made. Um, but yeah, it was really special to actually be able to fly in an aircraft that I, I worked on, had, had the privilege of helping um, helping bring to life. Wow, very nice. What an experience. So looking at some of your bio notes here, it looks like you're now the president of the Central California Soaring Association based in Avenal. Can you first describe for listeners where Avenal is located in California and the surrounding area? And on a good day in, say, July through September, if you wanted to do an out and return and not have a chase vehicle, what would be a good day and where do you point from there and what are the conditions along the way? Yeah, so um, Avenal, um, Avenal and the Central California Soaring Association, we're a, we're a club, 501c3 nonprofit um, based in the California Central Valley on the, on the western side of the Central Valley. Um, we're about two and a half hours from the Bay Area, southeast. Uh, and then uh, about probably three hours to the north of LA. Um, what makes Avenal special and why it's kind of been preserved as a soaring site per se um, is that it butts up against the um, a mountain range called the San Benitos. Um, 
which hooked hook onto or which connect to a bunch of other mountain ranges in that that area. Um, but we get incredible convergence in spring, uh, early spring through early summer, and then late summer through early fall, typically. Um, and what that allows for some it allows for some incredible flights out of that location. Um, uh, flights that you can fly dozens, if not hundreds, even hundred of miles without turning uh, on that convergence line. So that convergence is formed when we got the warm uh, inland valley air meeting the cooler um, coastal air. And then typically uh, that line sets up not too far from the glider port. So on a good day, yeah, you could tow, take a local tow, catch a local thermal at 1,500, 2,000 feet AGL, uh, climb up to six, 7,000 feet, kind of punch your way into the convergence and then hook your, uh, hook your way up to cloud base, kind of ratchet sometimes is what we call it, ratchet our way up to cloud base there on the convergence line. And then from there, you kind of have the option of going north up towards the Bay Area or down south towards Santa Barbara and LA area. Um, and yeah, on the good days that that um, on good days we have flights that go all as far north. I believe the furthest north we had um, this season, and I think in recent time, um, one of our uh, very active members and one of my mentors, Morgan Hall, flew all the way up to Mount Diablo in the Bay Area, so about a 500k out wow. return from uh, Avenal, and then down south all the way to uh, Santa Barbara, LA area, even. Um, as far as on good days down to San Diego, Morgan also had a flight a few years back going straight out from Avenal to um, Santa Bar or San Diego and then uh, took a launch out of San Diego the next day and, and, and flew back. So, nice. uh, yeah, it, it allows, yeah, allows access to a lot of that uh, coastal convergence. And then something else unique about Avenal is uh, he, on the good on some a handful of days a year, you can actually hook up with the Sierras straight out of Avenal. So going south around the, the Central Valley, south um, south, and then hooking to the east up the um, Tehachapi area, the, the Sierra foothills, and then into the Sierra proper. Um, so yeah, Avenal, it's a small, um, small um, dirt strip out in the desert, uh, out in the valley, but uh, really has a, a lot of opportunities for some incredible flights. In terms of uh, being able to do an out and return, yeah. So Anything from a couple hundred kilometers to uh, earlier this spring, I could talk about this a little bit later, but we uh, had a couple of eight, nine hundred uh, K flights out of the area uh, nice. using that convergence and then also hooking up with the Sierra. So, uh, yeah, there's definitely uh, good opportunities for that and being able to stay high in, in the convergence a lot of times doesn't warrant a chase vehicle because at some point you just uh, go as far south or as far north as you want to and then turn around and ride that convergence all the way back. Right. <laughs> nice. I know you've flown a bunch out of the Sierra also. Um, can you tell listeners about that and what makes this area so special? So Sierra, um, as I talked about before, they're, they're a big mountain range stretching between um, so, uh, Southern California up to Northern California and spilling over into Nevada and parts. Um, incredibly, incredible scenery, um, incredible, incredibly strong lift and kind of uh, a glider paradise, as I describe it, in, in, in this side of, uh, in this hemisphere of, of uh, the earth. So we've got a couple of sites that we can access them from. Um, Truckee, Air Sailing, up north, Minden are all kind of in that general vicinity up in um, the Tahoe, Reno area. And then uh, on the southern side, Tehachapi and Inyokern are the other sites. Um, and then Crystal, to an extent, too, uh, that you can access this year from um, I've 
flown uh, this year primarily out of Truckee and then uh, uh, Truckee and Inyokern. Inyokern just because it's close to uh, the closest access point or one of the closest access points um, to my house um, living on the central coast. And then Truckee because uh, my parents live there. Um, still got connections back there from high school. Uh, so it's a nice, nice place to go to make a little soaring and then home vacation out of. Uh, and so uh, yeah, typical day in the Sierra, you're flying cloud base, uh, 16, 18,000, sometimes even higher, obviously staying below 18, but, uh, ripping convergence lines, energy lines that line up with the peaks. Um, and then, uh, on top of that, just being able to cover a lot of ground because you're staying up high staying fast, taking good climbs. Um, and it's, it's pretty incredible soaring, um, from probably about March until September, Flying up in the mountainsides like Menden and Truckee, obviously you can be exposed to some pretty crazy weather, not only up in the air, but down on the ground, like taking off at those high altitudes on hot days or landing in super aggressive winds or gradient, all that. Can you maybe dial up a couple of interesting experiences you or maybe a flying buddy have had at those airports over the years? Sure, Chuck. So, um, as spectacular as this fine Sierra is, um, definitely comes with its uh, fair share of hazards, um, weather particularly, but also terrain, um, high density altitudes, things like that. Um, so can't really recommend learning to fly cross country in the Sierra, but uh, once you once you, uh, you you transition from another soaring site, um, getting the fundamentals down and then having a good mentor or um uh, instructor to really prepare you for flying that maybe perhaps taking a two seat flight or um, two seater flight um, or flying uh, team flying lead and follow flying with someone who's familiar with the sites. Um, that would be, that's generally probably the best way to get into flying, flying in these, uh, these conditions. But in terms of hazardous weather um, a couple years back, I know there's a mi microburst uh, at Minden that uh, totaled some gliders there. Uh, and, and power planes as well. I was flying out of Truckee that day and uh, essentially went down south, came back up north. And um, as the good days are there, it's typically um, the best days in the Sierra are the days where it's right on the edge of thunderstorming and it doesn't. And sometimes you fly in days that uh, it does end up crossing that threshold and you do get thunderstorms. Um, so obviously keeping your distance from those storms is important. Um, I definitely did them this day, um, waiting to get back into Truckee, um, kind of saw this, this cell blow up over Truckee and then move to the east um, over Minden. And I just remember sitting about 16,500 feet on the edge of these the cloud deck watching down and it looked like essentially giant fists coming, fists of wind coming down and just blowing. I, I, I want to say they had 50, 60 60 knots or something on the ground there, um, maybe gusts even higher through the, through this microburst oh, event that lifted up gliders. And I, 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 I was wow. too far away to see the, um, see any, any aircraft or anything, but I could see these big plumes of dust just, uh, billowing up from, from the desert floor, um, kind of surreal watching it there and then waiting for the storm to dissipate, uh, and then being able to, uh, take a, a really fat margin final glide back in the Truckee, um, under that dark sky. Wow. At that point, the thunderstorm had cleared, uh, but there was still uh, overcast at that point. So taking the final glide from pretty far out and then staying high on that was definitely, definitely a, a, a advisable strategy for a day like that. Yeah. Crazy. Hmm. 
sometimes staying in the air and letting that wind down, you know, is a good thing to do. People are, it gets crazy and people are like, oh, I got to land, I got to land. But you got the altitude and you can, it's good just to kind of wait it out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you have the op- opportunity to, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of waiting things out. Sometimes you extend your, one of your legs and Hey, you might not make it back to where you took off, but you land at a close airport. Uh, instead, um, well, the storms have dissipated, things like that. There's a lot of strategies you could utilize to make sure you're not landing in the thick of it, but yeah, it's not, I would, I don't like it, but not, it's not, uh, uh, not, not out of the ordinary to land and, uh, either, beat a beat a storm in and have it rain a little bit on the a little bit or a lot on the ground once you're tying down your glider or uh have to take a little bit of a final glide through a couple raindrops um but uh generally yeah best of uh, avoid um best advice is to avoid those storms and avoid those situations and fortunately for the most part uh, i managed to do that um but yeah definitely flying that area and, and those mountains definitely deserve a lot of respect um weather can change in an instant um and can really, uh, uh, really ruin your day. Absolutely. Our longtime sponsor of the show, the Soaring Academy, is engaged in nonprofit outreach work with local area veterans and also with young people for the STEM programs at their top-notch glider port facility just outside of Los Angeles, nestled near the north side of the San Gabriel Mountains. They also have a fantastic flight school and are continuing to turn out great glider pilots every month. If you like to donate to their nonprofit initiatives or learn more about their flight school, go to soaringacademy.org or check them out on Instagram at Soaring Academy. Can you wind us back in time to a flight, maybe for whatever reason, magical, scary, character building, ego building, maybe record breaking? Just pick one of those flights that mainly really sticks out above the others in your mind and just take listeners along for the ride that day and what made it special. Yeah, so uh, a flight that a flight and a day that stick out in my mind particularly were uh, last spring at Avenal. Um, had one of my longest flights, almost my longest flight at that point. Um, ended up doing 957 kilometers out of Avenal uh, in the convergence. It looked like an incredible day on the forecast leading up to it. So uh, got a tow pilot uh, lined up early. Um, knew it was going to be an early start to the day as well. Um, so was planning for about a 10:30 or so launch actually ended up getting a tow from, uh, my buddy who I'd be flying with that day, Morgan, um, Morgan Hall, who I mentioned earlier, he ended up towing me and then the real tow pilot showed up and then he got in his glider and took a tow right behind me. Nice. <laughs> um, but yeah, that day was a, a kind of textbook convergence day, but everything to the extreme. So just starting really early, really strong convergence, really well marked and uh, ended up essentially what we call it to yo-yo down the convergence. So um, I know in some circles, it's kind of frowned upon to fly the same air twice in a flight. I know OLC rewards um, doing triangles yeah. um, and things like that. Um, but in, this was a day that my ultimate goal was to do a thousand kilometers. I thought it was possible. And uh, I think had I had a, had a little bit, um, made it, had I had a, a little bit different day or made a couple of different decisions, it definitely would have been possible. Um, I fly a discus a glider now and, uh, in that glider, uh, standard class 15 meters. So no flaps, um, anything else, higher performance. I think that wouldn't that have been that much of a, uh, a stretch to do. Um, but, uh, I'd still think, um, with the conditions and, uh, on another day like that, it's still possible to do a thousand K out of Avenal in a standard class glider. And 
uh, I think something important to keep in mind here uh, out of Avenal and uh, these sites, they're not high Sierra sites, so we're staying most of the time below 10,000 feet or so, so you don't get as much of a true airspeed advantage as you do soaring out in the desert. So um, kind of similar to uh, uh, what they do in Germany, where they, they just have to launch early and fly all day. So I ended up, I think, being close to nine hours in the cockpit that day. Wow. Um, up and down the mountain, the, the coastal range, or the yeah, San Benitos and the other ranges close to the coast, um, uh, doing that twice and then coming in and landing. And yeah, that day also that day I didn't land quite back to Avenal landed about five miles short on uh, there's a paved strip there. Um, that sometimes we, we use if we come up short on the final glide, which in this case we did, cause yeah, the skies closed up, it got dark and, uh, just a, a couple hundred feet below what I'd want for a final glide. And then, uh, put it in there and yeah. On days like that, you definitely have your glider trailer ready to go, so your buddy can yeah. be there within 10 minutes um, if you land close enough. Um, but uh, yeah, landed there right before the rain, and then uh, packed everything up and uh, had a had a had a fun. Uh, I remember we went to go get tacos that night with everybody else who flew. Um, Morgan, who I mentioned, also had a fantastic flight that day. He did a big triangle out towards the Sierra, staying on the foothill on the on the uh, western slope of the Sierra. Um, going up north and then crossing the valley at the end of the day back to Avenal. I think that ended up being like 800 or something oh, well, kilometer nice. triangle. So, yeah, there's a yeah well, couple days a year that we get it. Um, definitely some potential for some incredible flights. And then for even just a, a, a normal good convergence days, um, 500 kilometer flights are pretty easily had in, in, in that environment. Zach, before we head into our lightning round questions, you know, we usually like to ask pilots to spend some time talking about safety, and we'll leave this pretty open-ended, but in the interest of always trying to advance safety in this great sport of ours, what do you have to share with the community that might help prevent an incident or accident, and if you have any personal things that have happened to you or your buddies that would help us out and that we could all do better? Yeah, so... Something, uh, the big, big thing that comes to mind and, and for this question is flying with margins. So uh, when you talk about margins, what kind of glide ratio, safety glide ratio are you using to your known land out spot? So yeah, as glider pilots, you all, it's always, uh, always important um, to have a primary land out planned. And then even if that doesn't work, potentially a backup landing area too. Uh, and so when we're flying cross country, um, we're still flying local to, uh, essentially flying local to uh, landable site at all times. Um, shouldn't really find yourself in a situation where uh, you get low and then you're scrambling for options of what to do. So in order to um, know what you have as options, I think it's really important to understand what kind of margins you should be flying with and also safety McCready. Um, I think that's safety McCready is probably a, a conversation for another uh, podcast or another topic. I know the Soaring Master has some videos on that. Uh, Chess in the Air as well has a, has a blog on that uh, if you want to get into that more and don't understand it. But um, really fundamentally what it is is knowing what uh, glide ratio you can depend on given some conditions to make it to a field. So as I mentioned earlier, starting to fly the DG back in the early days, giving myself half best glide, so 18 to one back to the field. Keeping that glide ratio uh, was kind of, that was kind of a hard fixed number um, after getting out of that DG flying the Cirrus a, a hand, uh, handful of hours. Um, I tended to push that number up, so getting into the mid to high 20s and then even up to 30, depending on the conditions. Uh, looking back on that, that definitely, definitely got into, 
gone into situations where you hit a, even just a little bit of a sink or some of headwind where you eat up those margins really quick. So uh, understanding that, yeah, um, flying, uh, what, I, what I've told people now that I've, I've had more experience with soaring is that flying when you're stressed is not fun. So in order to not be stressed, um, it's best to know that you always have a land out and you're always going to make that. Um, and so flying with an adequate margin allows you to do that and flying with essentially margins on margins. So uh, just because you start flying more, getting uh, get more comfortable with cross country, soaring, um, important to keep those margins in mind and not erode those margins um, uh, so that, yeah, when you hit bad weather, you hit sink, um, you have a lot of essentially a, a buffer onto, um, to eat into. And you'll know you'll always make it back to a good landing spot. Prevents landouts, prevents having to find a miracle uh, thermal, things like that. Um, and then just makes flying a, a much more enjoyable experience when you're not stressed about the potential of a, of a unplanned or big uh, major, let's see, major inconvenient landout for a place that you wouldn't want to land. Absolutely. Some great advice. Thank you, Zach. And last but not least, before we head into the lightning round questions, we always give our guest pilots a chance to give a shout out to those that have been helpful in the pursuit of their soaring journey, whether that's family, friends, instructors, or other mentors, Zach, it's your chance. Sure. So um, going back to how I got into uh, soaring um, with Aquafleek Slow, so all of those who made that um, that club and that organization possible specifically, um, want to thank uh one of our founders of that group, Frank Owen, who's a Cal Poly, who was a Cal Poly professor um, in the mechanical engineering department. Um, he had some relationships with some of the German Aquafleeks, so actually send one of our one of the founding Aquafleeks members, Jen Bowman, um, helped organize a trip with her to Germany to uh, really see those Aquafleeks firsthand. Um, unfortunately, we lost Frank uh, uh, earlier this year to cancer, so he's no longer with us, but um, definitely grateful for what he did for making Aquafleeg and then my entry into Soaring Possible. Um, another one of our big influential, influential um, members, mentors, instructors for Aquafleeg, Don Flynn, um, uh, offered really affordable instruction for our uh, Aquafleeg members, was there to teach ground school, to help with flight simulators, help uh, shuttle students back and forth to the field, always a uh, super, um, super positive, awesome member of the, of uh, Aquafleeg and then Centr uh, Central California Soaring Association. Um, and that helped really bring a lot of juniors into the sport. Um, in addition to that, some of my mentors, um, Morgan, uh, Morgan Hall, who I fly out of, having all give him a shout out. Um, and then uh, David Greenhill, Peter Dean also helped me um, uh, along the way, especially getting into mountain soaring. And then uh, Paulo, Dr. Iskold, um, and then Sergio, who was um, instrumental in getting the Nixus project, um, making it happen. Uh, both of them uh, couldn't thank them enough for uh, the opportunity to uh, work on such an incredible project during my undergraduate degree. Uh, also wanted to thank my parents. So I don't come from an aviation family, but um, being a, getting into soaring um, and uh, them just kind of seeing all this, all the uh, bad parts of general aviation, um, really just uh, grateful for their patience and understanding while I pursue my passion, even though if it, it is something that uh, sometimes they worry about me in the air. Uh, haven't scared them too bad yet, but uh, appreciate uh, all their support with the with the sport. 
I'd also like to thank Garrett and the crew down at Sky Sailing. So uh, Garrett Willett down at uh, Sky Sailing in San Diego um, was one of the ones who really uh, made my journey with the Standard Cirrus a couple of years back possible. Um, the gentleman um, who donated it to Garrett um, to find a junior to fly. And so without him, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. And then further on, um, a, a couple of years back, Garrett loaned me some shop space to work on my personal glider after returning the Cirrus uh, to do a refinish on that. So that was a big help in my uh, soaring journey so far. So really appreciate that, Garrett. So our soaring lightning round, are you ready for this? All right, if you could only pick one, what glider port or region would be at the tippy top of your bucket list of places to go soaring and why? Um, let's see, definitely want to, uh, fly in Europe. Um, I see some incredible flights in the Alps. That would be probably number one at this point. Um, although I think before I can fully take advantage of those conditions, there's still so much more to explore in the U S and, and semi-locally, but, uh, yeah, that's definitely on the bucket list. What's harder for lower hour pilots to master? Getting into and staying in wave or staying in convergent lines for long distances? Uh, I would say definitely convergence. Um, wave is kind of binary. It's either you're in lift or uh, you're, you're, you're in lift or in sync. Um, and uh, sometimes working weak wave gets a little bit more difficult, but convergence, um, at least for me, fly, learning to fly wave is, uh, was a lot more straightforward and uh aligned a lot better with my textbook understanding of it um, compared to convergence where um, there's all these little intricacies. And I mean, I think it's, I think it's, it, it takes years, if not decades to really master flying convergence. Um, and especially because there's so much variety in convergence in terms of even at a particular site, um, terrain, weather, all of these things that influence convergence and uh, different days um, in the same site can yield completely different um, flying conditions. What's the highest altitude you've ever been in a glider, and where was it? Uh, that was 26,500 feet, I think, out of uh, Inyo Kern, California. Nice. P2, P bag, diaper, or P out the window? <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, <laughs> my, uh, my personal glider, uh, P2 for me. Um, when I'm flying in other gliders, yeah, bring bags. Don't really know what their accommodations are always, so just better to keep something that uh, um, that's a uh, portable essentially yeah if you could fly your glider at only one bank angle other than level what would it be uh probably one degree just go as straight as possible <laughs> um <laughs> as far as possible and then maybe switch to one degree the other side is that uh is that allowed sure what's your favorite yeah. type of lift all things equal thermal wave ridge or convergence hmm see it's it's in the summers, probably the answer would be wave, and then in the winter would be missing thermals. So it depends on the season. But uh, um, oh, generally yeah. speaking, convergence is also just a really neat puzzle to try and solve. And so probably just to pick one, uh, probably just convergence, um, especially because it's just so prevalent in everywhere that I soar. What's the strangest or most spectacular thing you've ever seen in a glider cockpit? And we don't judge here, so you can say it was a UFO. It's okay. Hmm. Okay. So I would actually, it's funny you bring up UFO. Um, I would say that I did see a UFO. It was some kind of aircraft that I could not identify what it was, a flying wing shaped thing, um, 
out in the desert, kind of around uh, Mojave, um, Edwards Air Force Base, up ho- pretty high there. Um, wasn't sure if it, was, it kind of had a B-21 shape, but uh, I know that, that aircraft's not flying, so um, potentially like a, should I forget the designation of a RQ-180 maybe, um, drone, one of the classified drones, but definitely something that uh, it was not anything that uh, was public knowledge at that point, I think. So that was has to take the bait or take the cake for the um, most interesting thing I've seen in terms of aircraft out my side of my window. If you had to pick one thing for lower hour pilots trying to learn how to thermal more effect- efficiently and effectively, what would be your advice to them? Yeah, I would say bank harder than you think you need to. Um, a lot, a lot of times the lift is a lot um, stronger in the center of the thermal. And one of the um, one of the big things I can I see with newer lower hour pilots coming, especially out coming out of Schweitzer's, is like keeping a pretty shallow bank angle. And uh, typically, yeah, you get get in the core of the thermal, find it first, and then crank that bank over forty five to fifty degrees or so, which um, initially typically feels pretty tight but uh generally speaking that's there's a lot of good lift in that center of the thermal it just depends on the thermal too though um kind of have to get that sense for the width of thermal sometimes yeah you get away with 30 40 degrees but other times it's definitely uh um and i say say most of the time definitely prudent to uh, increase that bank angle tighter money no object and you could only spend it on a glider what dream glider would you buy and what do you like about it hmm you know is what I've been looking at recently um, after, especially after last world gliding championships is uh, the, how, how well the Diana twos are still doing. Um, that's about, I think about a 20 year old design already and, and still winning top of the world. So uh, Diana three, I know those things are flying out and around and more conventional, but still keeping a lot of the um, conventional wing layout, but uh, more Diana airfoils and some of that Diana magic there. And so potentially a Diana three and others are available in FES. Um, that's what I'd say right now. I know there's a lot of super ships out there that, uh, that um, would outperform that some open class gliders, but the convenience of having a 15 or 18 meter glider and practicality of that uh, would probably uh, make me lean towards um, some kind of modern, modern glider, uh, modern 18 meter glider, probably Diana three. Wings and Wheels has been serving the soaring and sport aviation community for over 30 years. They hands down have the largest and most comprehensive inventory of sailplane and soaring supplies in North America, and they ship globally. Nearly everything you'll find on their site is in stock and ready for same-day shipping. Wings and Wheels is the exclusive American representative for HPH sailplanes. Be sure to check out the Twin Shark, their latest launch. The team has thousands of hours of flying experience in gliders and airplanes, staffed by Adam, Kelly, Julie, and Sean. A friendly voice will answer when you call or email them. Check them out at wingsandwheels.com. You have a gently sloping uphill field you can land out in, but your flight computer is showing a brisk 15-knot tailwind, and the only other field that looks viable is your land out becomes imminent. Well, that field is sloping about the same gradient, but downhill, and has a 15-knot headwind. Which one would you pick, and why? So, in this case, I'd pick uh, the uphill slope um, with the uh, tailwind. I'll be coming in faster, but um, one of the problems with landing a downhill one is, is as you come to slow down, uh, even with a headwind, um, you, you 
And what was the head when you were saying 15 knots? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so 15 knots, that might not be enough to uh, actually make you come to a stop before you overshoot the field just because your sink rate might match the uh, field angle and then you might have some uh, additional problems if you overfly the field that you're attending on landing on. So yeah, I'll take the uphill with the uh, tailwind and just come in fast. Hopefully, uh, hopefully it's not too bad of a uphill. Your favorite glider port accommodations, tent, RV, lo local flea bag motel. Yeah, uh, for me, it depends. So, uh, fortunate enough to borrow an RV for nationals last year, and that was awesome accommodations. Um, but typically, when it's oh, just nice. an overnight thing, um, uh, out at Inyokern or out other places, um, camp in my car, camp in the glider. I've done the, the plenty of uh, spent plenty of nights in the glider clubhouses. So. Um, yeah, right. <laughs> try to avoid the tent because it's just an extra setup, uh, step to set up. But uh, I know that's, that's always an option. But yeah, car or uh, sleeping on the couch in the glider port. What and where was your lowest or most memorable save from a land out? Uh, it was a time I was at Shafter um, out in the um, Central Valley. Um, a friend, called, his name's Josh Nur, has a, a Pawnee and a bunch of antique gliders out there as well as his LaBelle. And uh, um, we're getting some toes out there because we, we didn't have toes available at the time at, at our club in Avenal. And uh, I was planning on doing some flights for currency and uh, um, was first flight was just going to be a rope break just to get a, a couple of takeoffs and landings. in. so it got off the rope or got off the tow plane about probably about a, I guess more pattern, but low pattern got off about a thousand AGL and then came in, turned uh, down when or got on downwind. And as soon as I got on downwind, essentially, got into a four or five knot climb and actually climbed out with that. Uh, definitely uh, not not advising to thermal out of the pattern. I know a lot of glider ports and operations that's um, not allowed, <laughs> not just frowned upon, but not allowed. Uh, but in this case, there's no traffic around. Um, and uh, I was in a position where if that turn didn't work out, um, I was uh, one turn away from just uh, coming into final, final turn for landing. So yeah. Um, don't don't condone thermaling low or anything like that, but in this situation, it, it was available and, and worked out. What's your favorite flight computer, irrespective of what you have currently in your glider? Yeah. Just what would your ideal flight computer, and what do you like about it over others? Yes, yeah, so my glider right now, I've got a, uh, a UDI, uh, Navitor UDI 2, and then I've got a... Uh, um, just this new last season, I put a um, butterfly vario in. So the combination of those two is what I um, uh, rely on most for uh, um, for getting all my information. Um, Udi is great because it's transferable between gliders. You can take it home. You can use it on Condor, um, and it's affordable as well. Um, you get one of those. Typically, find them secondhand for under or around three hundred bucks, and I think they're only a hundred or more, um, for a uh, hundred or so more. Um, if you get them new, uh, so the UDI is great. Um, I like that also being able to, in the contest setting, be able to take it out of my glider and put the task in while we're at the task meeting and then, uh, head out to the glider and pop it in. Um, and then the butterfly, um, Vario slash flight computer is amazing because of the wind readout it gets you. So especially where I fly, flying a lot of convergence, um, I've never flown with a glide computer, flight computer that has the types of winds that it that it, it has on it. 
types of winds where essentially you could fly by a thermal and see the arrow move on, on it as you fly past, uh, past the thermal. So it's about a 10 second um, wind average on it. So can't speak highly enough about that instrument. Definitely a game changer. But the combo of those two is serving me really well in my glider. If you had to rank the various weather products available to cross-country pilots, which one would you overall rank the best? Yeah, so definitely uh, my go-tos are our local RASP, um, OG RASP, <laughs> we call it the OG RASP um, at Avenal. Um, that's been around for, I don't know, 10, 15, maybe even longer, definitely longer than I've been in soaring. Um, uh, for a local area, um, they've got one uh, gentleman up in uh, Northern California, Bart, uh, maintains ours. Um, and then he also maintains one for the Sierras. I know Val... Um, a uh, fellow glider pilot out in the Bay Area also has a, a RASP we use for um, the coastal range and Sierras as well. So we've got those couple of RASPs. Um, those are great for, I just feel like those have really good calibration towards that local area. Um, but SkySight is, um, yeah, shout, shout out to Matthew. Thank you for getting that done and continuing to improve that product because it's it's invaluable for um, and game changing for what we've had in the last couple of years. Um, new features seems like all the time, great convergence um, marking when, when we're flying in the blue and then awesome for wave integration too. And then, and then the fact you can load that, that weather onto a flight computer is, is great. Okay. So Zach, you're at the gas station and someone comes up to you and asks what's in the trailer. You say a, a mini drag racing car, B a submarine, C a large model rocket or D just be boring and tell them it's a glider. Oh, it depends if I'm in a rush or not. <laughs> if I'm in a hurry to get home or go soaring, yeah, I'll give a smart, <laughs> right? smart answer and tell them a, a, a submarine or a rocket or something like that and get on my way. But uh, if I'm feeling, if I got time, if I'm feeling chatty and uh, I mean, you, you, you never know who you're going to meet at a gas station. You tell them, oh yeah, it's an airplane or a glider. And uh, yeah, I'm telling it out to either go flying or come from a flight and uh, chat a little while the gas is, gas tank's filling up. Um, yeah, it just kind of depends on the situation. So you get back to your pad after a long day of cross-country soaring in the summer. What's the first thing you do? Take a shower, drink a cold beer or other beverage of choice, look at your flight track and start making notes and what you did wrong, or flop on the bed and take a nap while still wearing your bucket hat? <laughs> So in the past, it used to be uh, the first thing I get home, upload to OLC. Um, last season, I upgraded my Flarm to the Flarm Fusion. So that happens almost as soon as I land uh, through Bluetooth on my phone. So that's no longer a thing. Um, most of the time, it's uh, jumping in the shower, uh, especially flying out of Avenal. We fly out of dust, uh, at a dirt strip. It's quite dusty out there. So um, after a good day of flying and a five, six, seven hours in the cockpit, uh, you, you end up sweaty with a layer of dust covering you. And it's almost like a grime that you have to, that you, you want to get off. And so it's definitely nice to get home and then clean up right away. And then don't worry about, uh, all the, all the stuff to unload and, and, and get back ready for, uh, for the next adventure. Well, Zach, thanks for uh, doing the lightning round. It's always fun. And thank you for being on the podcast. I've really enjoyed your adventures, and I know the listeners have enjoyed it. So, yeah, thanks again for taking your time and doing that. Chuck, my pleasure. It's uh, it's awesome being on here. Um, awesome being a guest on this podcast that I've uh, uh, listened to so many episodes of. And I uh, hope to talk to you uh, sometime soon in the future, maybe talk about some some flights from next season or something. Absolutely. I, I'm, I'm always uh, famous for bugging my guest again, so you can count on it. Great. Well, thank you. 
All right, we're here at Antelope Valley Soaring. It is Saturday, December 4th, and we're with Christian Lignan and Matchek Mekawaki, who's both very excellent longtime pilots here, both at AVSC and other places. And amazingly, they had a flight of 55 minutes on December 4th. So, Christian, can you tell us something about this flight, what made it so unique for December 4th? Oh, what's interesting is, you know, you always go flying in the winter thinking the air is dead, there's no condition, it's just right. we enjoy the, the camaraderie, the scenery, and being up in the air, and some thermals pop up, not very strong, but still good enough to to challenge and keep a zero, a plus one, maybe plus 200 feet a minute, and, you know, a flight which was supposed to last maybe 15 minutes okay. ends up uh, like 55 minutes, mm -hmm. almost an hour. So it's it's great. It's wonderful for the yeah. uh, 4th of December. The 4th of December, absolutely. And it's also, I've been told and heard that it's the good winter pilots who can work those one and two knot thermals that, you know, makes you even better summer pilot. So... Um, were you primarily piloting uh, that check or were you taking uh, turns? Yeah, we switched. I, I did takeoff and landing. Uh, so I take full responsibility. Yeah. It was a good landing, good takeoff. <laughs> no, but uh, so we basically f flew, you know, half and half, you know, ceremony wise. Uh, yeah, joint effort. Yeah, yeah. Joint effort, yeah. Plus but I wanted to comment yeah. earlier. So because it's winter flying, uh, you know, one should come with uh, different expectations, right? Sure. And if your expectations adjust to, to the season, you will be rewarded. Like today, I came with an expectation of a sled ride. Right. And we got this. So I'm like as stoked as I would be summer, like like a four-hour, you know, f you know, 15,000 uh, mm -hmm. feet flight. Right. It's super nice. You know, you, you, you keep your skills up and, you know, you had a good, good time. Perfect weather. Like, what can you ask? else for yeah what else can you ask yeah, for i mean you know an hour is like four hours in the summer right yeah <laughs> the goal is to fly all year round and it's a bonus flying 55 minutes plus we share the experience yeah. we can see our tourmaling's technique and uh, appreciate someone else landing takeoff all these uh, part of the flight every part of the flight is uh, is something we can learn from sure. another pilot. Yeah, and the cherry on the time. cake was flying to, in the same thermal with Lee, right? So exactly, we, there you we go. We were like winked to winked it. it yeah. Was awesome. Like that, yeah. that alone was worth it, you know? Absolutely. And wintertime, super nice. Yeah, well, we're fortunate to be able to do that here in the Mojave, so that was awesome. Well, thanks for talking to me and uh, have a safe trip home. Cheers. Thank you. Thanks. Hi everyone, Sergio from Sorry Master here. Today we are going to talk about the decision to commit ourselves to a task after takeoff. The decision to go cross country must be taken before leaving the gliding field and it always causes some tension with that big question running in our minds, should I stay or should I go? But there are ways to better decide this. After launch, once you have climbed, fly towards the opposite direction of your first leg up to the gliding cone limit of your gliding field. And once there, head back to the field in the direction of the first leg up to the opposite gliding cone limit. 
This cone crossing is a good navigation probe. A sailplane can easily cover 10 or 15 nautical miles of representative weather by doing this, and while you fly, assess whether thermal average matches your forecast and analyze if thermal spacing is good enough for your glider performance. If conditions are satisfactory, you can proceed directly and depart. If not, head back to your gliding field and wait for the conditions to improve while you analyze the possible reasons for this difference between current weather and forecast. Is there any delayed heating occurring? An inversion? Uh, was the forecast too optimistic? Assess if your original task still is achievable or not, if you need to reduce the task length, or if it's better just to make a local flight. Uh, the important thing is to have an emotionally detached attitude towards the flight conditions ahead and your flight goal. If the big picture seems to remain constant, most certainly the first lag conditions will be much alike. Uh, with experience, the decision to go will become less stressful because you will not be guessing, but taking decisions based on sound judgment. I hope that this tip makes this type of decision a lot easier, guys. And just a quick note, the Soaring Master course will open its first class in December. The Soaring Master course is a training method in the form of an online course that helps pilots better identify their gaps and provides in-depth lectures and proposed training sessions to help them improve in a faster way. For more info, subscribe at SoaringMaster.com or follow me on Instagram at SoaringMaster. Thank you, Sergio, for another great Soaring Master segment. I also want to thank our on-the-road reporter, Christopher Stevenson, for bringing us another short chat with some of our friends there in the Mojave. Zach Yamauchi, thank you for sharing us your story today as well. Until next time, stay healthy, stay safe, and happy soaring. If you would like to say hi and let us know where you are enjoying the podcast, we would love to hear from you. If you are a glider pilot and want to share your aviation journey, contact us at chuck at soaringthesky.com or send us a message on our website at soaringthesky.com and Chuck will get in touch with you. We hope you join us next time for another soaring adventure here on Soaring the Sky, a glider pilot's podcast. Soaring the Sky is written and produced by Chuck Fulton, co-producer Mitch Thompson. Original music for the podcast was written and produced by Kim Spangler. Graphic design for the podcast was created by Zachary Fulton. Voiceover work was done by Michelle Perez.